Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to episode five of Just the Facts. I'm Alex Zane. Fact. Die Hard is the greatest action movie in the history of cinema. Disagree? Really? No, of course you don't. But if you do, you know where to find me. And we can discuss this on Twitter and Instagram at JTFpod. But I do expect you to come armed if you want to enter this discussion with an alternate greatest action movie in the history of cinema. Because, sure, there are better effects, better stunt work in movies these days. But as an all-round action movie experience, I don't think there's anything greater than Die Hard. Maybe The Rundown, a.k.a. Welcome to the Jungle with The Rock and Sean William Scott. But that's it. So if you have an alternate opinion, get in touch on Twitter and Instagram at JTFpod. Also, congrats to Gary Bailey, Aaron Seddon and Cy Higgins, who all guessed this week's guest from the Clues Online. Right. So to this week's episode, I've been talking about how hot it's been getting in the studio recently in the heat wave we had, and today's guest is also on the warm side, but not because of the studio, because he is sitting in the glorious California sunshine by his pool in Los Angeles, looking every inch the hugely successful Hollywood screenwriter that he is. And if you want to see that image and potentially be as jealous as I was when I saw it for the first time, you can. Just watch our full video interview on our YouTube channel, Just The Facts with Alex Zay, which will be up there a few days after this podcast. Right then, ready for episode five? Let me throw 
are some movie titles at you. Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Commando, The Running Man, Street Fighter, Judge Dredd. Today's guest was a writer on all of them. I probably say about 50 words in the next 90 minutes because I am listening in awe to stories from a person who scripted large swathes of my cinematic childhood. It's time to welcome to Just The Facts the legendary screenwriter, Stephen D'Souza. Let me just got it. Here, wait, wait, let me, let me. Uh, that's not an earthquake. My iPad is swaying. <laughs> we did have an earthquake yesterday. I figured with the time difference in London, I should give you a little California for a background. Yeah, it's it's I'm, a it's a it's a Zoom background. I'm really I'm really in a ground floor a ground floor flat. No. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm assuming things are pretty good in California right now. Uh, yeah, we're returning to normal. It seems it seems to me. So we're uh, we're getting back to normal. Oh, good news. I'm turning my phone off to make sure it doesn't ring while we do this. There we go. All good, all good yes. Oh, good. All right. So, um, as I was saying, 33 years since Die Hard came out, still regarded as the greatest action movie ever, often imitated, never bettered, uh, and so far not rebooted. Does that not surprise you? There's a reason I'm asking this right now, but does it not surprise you that no one's tried to reboot Die Hard? Um, there has been conversation about it's a strange conversation there was there was talk at 20th century fox to do a prequel uh, uh and the idea was and i remember some executives saying we want to know what made uh john mcclain that kind of diehard kind of guy so we need a prequel when he was a young and go, well excuse me what made him that kind of guy was the movie Die Hard, which established <laughs> that prior to that he was just a regular guy you know so uh oh, that's the whole like prequel mentality uh I don't know. There actually was a, an authorized comic book, which was young John McClane when he was a patrol officer. Um, that was, uh, I don't know, about 20 years ago. A Dark Horse or somebody did it. But um, I don't, the, the last conversation I heard was there was going to be another, another sequel that would partially be old Bruce Willis uh, and then partially with flashbacks to his youth. And somehow um, the two like Godfather 2, the two ends of the story uh, would be connected. But, um, okay. you know, there, there, there was a Die Hard prequel starring Frank Sinatra. You know that story, right? <laughs> the detective, wasn't it? Exactly. I think it's um, 1968 or thereabouts. Uh, right. It was written by the same author. Um, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Rod uh, Rod Roderick Robert. Roderick Thorpe wrote a book called, the, he wrote many novels, but he wrote a book called The Detective in the mid-60s that was yeah. made into a motion picture with Frank Sinatra. Um, and then uh, about eight or nine years later, he wrote a sequel called Nothing Lasts Forever, which, which uh, our producer, Larry Gordon, said it sounded like a chick flick. Uh, oddly <laughs> enough, he, uh, so, so, so uh, um, at, at that time, um, Shane Black had just given, had just, uh, given a script to Joel Silver that Joel Silver just optioned. And Joel Silver said, listen, I'm taking your title off. I'm going to make your movie, but I'm taking the title and putting on another movie. So come with another title for your movie. So <laughs> the title that, yeah. So uh, the, the title he had for his script was called Die Hard. Joel appropriated the title and put it on Nothing Lasts Forever. And then um, uh, the original script called Die Hard got renamed Last Boy Scout. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the, the title. The titles got swapped around. I mean, I, I, it sounds to me like um, there were some interesting people that were approached uh, before John McTiernan uh, jumped on board. What, what, one name that sticks out to me, Paul Verhoeven. 
was uh, was uh, asked to direct Die Hard. Am I right in thinking that? Uh- uh, that may be true that uh, I was when 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 I was approached, it was already going to be in the Kiernan. So uh, uh, well, I was I was in the loop when all the actors turned it down. I you know, like uh, it'd be all the usual suspects. Uh, and you have to sort of put yourself, I guess, in the headspace of the actors and the actors agents uh, at that time uh, in, in uh, 1988, where we had had all these movies uh, with these, you know, roided up. Uh, larger than life, muscular heroes, and I'm I, w- I was uh, uh, culpable in some of that. Uh, so this script, goes, <laughs> this script goes out to actors, and they look at the script and they go uh, that the, the 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 hero spends the first thirty minutes hiding from the bad guys and trying to call the police. So they're going like, this guy's a wimp. Uh, they, they they couldn't get past that this was an important breakthrough in the world of you know uh, of, of making a believable hero. And and uh, it was turned down by Schwarzenegger, Stallone, um, uh, Richard Gere. Uh, uh, at one point, they went to um, uh, Burt Reynolds, who had a long relationship with the producer. Um, wow. Uh, Jamie Kahn. Uh, and it was a long, long list. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, it ended up going to Bruce Willis. The studio had a release date for the movie, so they were in a panic. And at that time, the $5 million fee that Bruce's agents demanded knowing again from the grapevine that everybody in town had turned it down and the clock was ticking, the movie needed to start like in a week and a half, uh, he got this high price and the repercussions were enormous. Richard Dreyfus uh, called his agent up the next day and said, Bruce Willis gets $5 million and I don't, and I have an Oscar, you're fired. <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, and it was the beginning of an arms race in um, uh, actor's fees and eventually went up to $20 million uh, before, for some of the stars before it got scaled back by giving them back ends and points and so forth and so on. But had we not had Bruce Willis and Die Hard, I don't think he would ever had Keanu Reeves as an action star uh, in Speed, speaking of, uh, uh, and, and so many other people, or uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, or so many other people that are not six foot three. I mean, there's still room for, uh, uh, for The Rock, and there's still <laughs> room for, uh, for these big guys. But uh, the, the universe has opened up for more normal-sized heroes, which is sort of easier to believe them as an underdog. You know, you have a problem, you know, you have a problem finding big enough guys to beat the rock up that you worry about him, you know? <laughs> it was, like, obviously he was a, a sitcom actor. He was in Moonlighting, he was Bruce Willis. And uh, Was there any pushback from audiences when you tested the movie on having a sitcom actor as an action hero, bearing in mind what had gone before? Uh, indeed, there was, and in fact, right bef- before the movie came out, um, uh, the kind of fans turned on Bruce because of uh, there was some um, politics and feuding on the set of Moonlighting, and between that and uh, the argument was made that that the that um, uh, leading lady was pregnant. So for for multiple for like three or four, I think for almost four or five episodes over a month, the stars were not in the show. And, and the supporting cast was on, and that irritated the audience. And then right before the movie opened, uh, a fellow who worked for Bruce Willis, uh, he had a boat in the marina, and a fellow who worked for Bruce Willis was, uh, like, uh, I guess, cleaning the boat or something and fell off and drowned. And then, I th- and then I think Bruce had a DUI or there was some kind of incident. So um, when, the, mo- when, the, when the, the trailer was in movie theaters, uh, I, you know, I'm working on the movie, right? And they said, hey, you know, the trailer's going to be in the movies this week. You know, go to a theater and see the coming attraction. So I go to the neighborhood theater, I guess it was in Century City, and when the trailer started, 
the audience booed Bruce. And I go, well, this is this, you know, these are these, you know, West Side, these West Side jerks, you know. But then on, then like before the weekend was over, I heard from everybody involved in the movie that everywhere, New York, LA, everywhere, people were booing and laughing at Bruce Willis's appearance in the trailer. So the studio went into a full-blown panic and the the teaser poster that said coming, you know, this July, which was a color poster of Bruce with a gun, they pulled it down. You still can see that. You can buy that poster. That was a teaser poster. They pulled that down and discarded it. And the new poster, which was about to go out, which was Bruce's face, half a face and half the, 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 uh, the, the building, yeah. they pulled that. And all the ads and the posters the week before the movie came out was just the building and no names of actors. <laughs> they basically tried. They basically they said, let's bury who's in it and hope word of mouth will take it over the top, which is what happened. The second week, the, the, the ads and the poster was the mostly black and white poster with the building and Bruce's face. But if you if you go online and do a little digging and I assume you have a Web page associated with your with your yeah. podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can definitely find that ad that ran the week before the movie came out, and it's just a building with helicopters and 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 a cast of none. <laughs> but he was um, he was was he still filming Moonlight as Die Hard was filming? Because I, I remember reading somewhere John McTiernan said like he was getting like twenty minutes sleep a, 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 a night because he was coming straight from Moonlight and grabbing a, a, a nap and then coming straight onto Die Hard. Uh, exactly, because the picture came together so quickly. And he was cast so late, he was not extricated from uh, his duties on the on the moonlighting show, which films like a normal workday, well, a Hollywood workday, which is seven to seven. Uh, the actors may not show up a little bit later, but the crew's in at seven. Um, so um, after, I guess, the fourth or fifth day of filming, and as it turned out, because to accommodate him, uh, the first couple of weeks of filming were f night shoots in the building. A lot of the movie is in a real building. Mm. The building you see is on the 20th century lot, so it was convenient and could be, you know, isolated and people wouldn't be walking in and out of the set. Um, so Baturnin came to me and said, listen, we're killing this guy. Uh, he's just catnapping, like, between takes. He's exhausted. Um, start, well, can you expand the, some of the other parts and we'll give, you know, Bruce a couple of days off, build up some of the other parts? So the subplots involving uh, the reporter uh, and... Um, uh, the first scene I wrote to accommodate this issue was the scene where uh, Holly confronts Alan Rickman. So all of the other supporting players, their parts got richer and the movie got more complex in a desire to give Bruce a break. And McTiernan was very kind later. He said a number of times in interviews and in this uh, big coffee table book of Die Hard that uh, he asked me to you know, expand the parts and I gave him a Fellini movie. Uh, so I don't know if that's exactly what it is. Uh, but the film was richer for it. It just shows you how uh, the, the uh, push me, pull, pull me vicissitudes of production uh, can, uh, for good or ill, uh, alter the course of what you're doing. And I mean, when you were on set, it sounds like uh, it was a, a, not a film that was sort of uh, made on the fly, but it was a lot was improvised on set and altered as you were you were filming it. I mean, both both in terms of. Uh, the ad libs that I, I, I know, because there's some really funny lines in Die Hard, um, which a lot of came from a back and forth with uh, you and Bruce on set. I mean, one of my favorites, and I don't know if it was an ad lib or if it's in your script, but uh, uh, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was a line that was interesting because um, I was on the set a lot. Uh, it, it, you, a lot sometimes writers aren't welcome on the set, but I had done many, many movies starting in television with these producers, and uh, I have been a producer and a showrunner in television before I made the transition to mostly. I mean, I'm still doing television before I started largely doing features. So, you know, I know the etiquette of a set. And if an actor says, uh, what's my motivation? I go, look, talk to the director. You know, my work is done. I'm just here. There's a problem. Um, so um, a film like this, there's not a lot of improvisation in an action movie. I mean, if you're not on your mark and an explosion goes off, you can, like, get hurt. Uh, but within the limited uh, parameters of improv, uh, there was some. And what happened on this picture, I was on the set all day. It was one of those uh, days where we were actually filming in the daytime, uh, going into the night. And I come home and I roll into my house. It's like one o'clock in the morning. And there's a phone call from um, um, our producer, Joel Silver. says, you got to come back to the set. I go, what is it? He says, they were doing this scene where Bruce is crawling through the vents. And these idiots, they used regular vents. In other words, <laughs> they, just, they, just got, they just got stock vents, uh, not realizing they should have been larger than stock vents to facilitate the crawling. So it's taken him a month to crawl through these vents. So we need some more ad libs. So I went back to the set and they gave Bruce a walkie talkie and I was just feeding him lines just to fill the time as he's crawling along, you know, in the tunnel. So come out to the coast. That was one of them. But uh, Bruce ad lib. Now I know what a TV dinner feels like. Uh, yeah. uh, that, that was an ad lib of his. Uh, and um, one of the more uh, interesting spontaneous things that happened from being on the set uh, Joel Silver has this uh, theory that these kind of movies, uh, action movies, are hate movies. They're like love stories, but they're hate stories. In a love story, uh, two characters meet, have a cute meet, they have a couple of dates, they fall in love, and they, and they uh, get married or go off together. In a hate movie, there's a cute meet, a couple of almost moments where they kill each other, and then one kills the other. The problem with we had was, given the structure of the movie and the overwhelming odds, there was sort of no way to get Bruce Willis together with Alan Rickman where, where, he, where Bruce wouldn't be killed. So this was bothering us all during the shoot. Is there a way we can have these guys meet, you know, and not, you know, before they you know, meet at the end of the movie. And then one day on the set, uh, it was a break and the equivalent of the tea lady on, a, on an American set, they come around with sandwiches, the craft service people in the afternoon. And we're just taking a break for some sandwiches or something. And uh, someone said to Alan Rickman, this was his first movie ever, not his first American movie, his first motion picture ever uh, said, Alan, a lot of the, the uh, British actors do an American accent. Do you do an American accent? And he said, um, well, I, I don't know if I do an American accent per se, but I do like, you know, a California one. So like hmm. everyone sort of, every, everyone burst up laughing, laughing. And then I said, oh my gosh. And I ran off and I grabbed Joel Silver and I brought him back and I said, do that again, Alan. Do, do, what, do what you did before, do your like American accent. And he did it again. And Joel said, uh, I don't get why, oh, 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 and he got it. And then he ran and got McTiernan and Larry Gordon. And then we bring him over and, and, and John McTiernan says, what, 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 is, what are we doing here? And I said, he only knows he only knows Hans Gruber as a voice on the walkie-talkie. But he can change his voice, he can meet him, and he can head fake him. And McTiernan, who's a very, McTiernan, you know, went to AFI in the script writing program, but became a director, so he's a meticulous planner and uh, kind of a, a very dour Scott. And he goes, mm, no, no, no. Now he saw him kill Tagagi. So I said, have you shot that yet? And um, McTiernan turned to the first AD, and the first AD says, no, we're shooting that tomorrow. 
So I said, if there is there a way to shoot that scene that he doesn't see Alan Rickman's face? Mm-hmm. So we all looked over to the soundstage that was the, the conference room. It was one of the things that was set. A lot of the movie was in the real building. This was a set. And uh, John walks around, you know, like this. And finally he says, all right, I guess if I move that big conference table, if I turn that conference table 45 degrees, it has a giant leg. Instead of having four legs, it has a giant like wall of leg at one end the other. Then I could stage it. And so the, uh, the stage crew starts to move. And he says, no, no, wait, wait, wait. You bring me the scene by the end of the day. And then maybe we'll like turn everything upside down. So um, I, they, they evicted like somebody from the, whatever was the closest office building the soundstage. Maybe it was accounting or bookkeeping, whatever it was. They made somebody leave their office, gave me their desk. It took me 10 minutes to remember how a typewriter worked because I, you know, <laughs> I already transitioned. Be, oh, yeah, there's a carriage return. And uh, we had a scene in the movie that was uh, filming, I guess, a week later where um, he actually ran into Theo, who was, who was an American. Hmm. And but 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 he but but Theo said something stupid and he realized Theo was a terrorist and he killed him. So the actor playing Theo got a life extension because he hmm. said we're taking that out and he's going to be Alan Rickman, but he's not going to kill him. But but there'll be a whole scene there. Um, so uh, that would never have happened had I not been on the set and not been Alan, Alan Rickman hadn't been, you know, uh, kidding around. Now, about that scene, people come to me all the time and go, how did he figure out? that he was one of the terrorists. And so people right. were like, oh, uh, because, oh, his accent wasn't that good. And, and he's such a good cop, he could tell a fake American accent. I go, no. And they go, oh, he gave him a cigarette, but it was a Galois cigarette, and no American would accept the creepy Fred cigarette. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> and then, and then, then another theory is, oh, uh, when he gave him the gun, the weight of the gun without the bullets, except he already trusted him. And he gave him, no, it wasn't that. What it was, and it all goes back to how movies are put together and they're shot out of order. Um, when originally, as written and shot, when all of the when when Alan Rickman and his crew got off of the truck at the very beginning of the movie, they paused for a moment, and Alan Rickman said in German, but the cognate is clear enough to English: "Synchronize your watches." Hmm. And they all, in a circle, put their hands out and they all beat synchronize their watches, and they all had the same tag your watch. Now, when, when Bruce kills the first uh, terrorist, which is uh, totally stolen, I admit, steal from the best, from Alfred Hitchcock in Torn Curtain, where they show how hard it is to kill somebody without a weapon. <laughs> There's a scene where Paul Newman and another woman kill a, a Stasi agent, and mm. it takes forever, right? And then probably enough, they, they gas him. You know, so there's a whole subtext there. Uh, so um, uh, he almost kills a guy by accident. The guy, you know, he falls down the steps. So now he searches the guy uh, and he finds cigarettes and he says, oh, these are very bad for you. And he looks around, he steals the cigarettes and the audience laughs because he's a cop, he steals cigarettes. And then he looks at the watch and there's another laugh. Is he going to steal the watch? But he doesn't. Anyway, as he killed each guy, each guy he kills him, he searches him, he takes his ammunition and each guy he killed, the next two guys, he noticed the watch. Now, when he has the conversation, with the cop outside, he says, I think these guys are pros. Their IDs are the best IDs I've ever seen. It looks like they all have the same weapons. The labels are cut out of their clothing. This is mm. a professional crew. He also said, and they all have the same watch. And later on, the uh, Dwayne Robinson, maybe he's a bartender, which is a, that's how he knows, which is a joke about Bruce Willis. <laughs> anyway, uh, as we're putting the movie together, 
we had always said, what was the explanation of how they were going to get away? So the explanation of how they were going to get away was that they were going to escape in the chaos of the explosion. But we didn't have that dialogue in the script until the end of the movie when he had Holly at gunpoint. And we're about to shoot that, and it just seems so phony and convenient. Like he says, if you steal $600, they forget about you. $600 million, they chase you to the ends of the earth, but not if they think we are dead. He was, and he explained how he was, so we just said, that's so phony, and it's this bad expedition. So literally at the 11th hour, uh, like 10 days before shooting, I said, listen, I did a thing in a movie that nobody's ever seen. It's not on home video, which was a TV movie of Will Eisner's The Spirit, which later was made a theatrical picture. Now, subsequently, mm. since Die Hard came out, Warner Brothers released this on, on home video so you can see it. Um, this is uh, Sam I, Jones Jr.'s in this, right? Yeah, that's but, right. Exactly. Yeah. That was a pilot for a series, but the network was sold and uh, it got lost in the transition. Uh, so anyway, that which was an over-the-top cartoon, the villain was so evil, she was going to blow up a children's hospital and an escape in a fake ambulance. So I said, nobody saw that. Let's do that. Great, great. Let's do that. Now, this was put together so hastily, right, that that scene where, the, and, and it requires no dialogue. When uh, Argyle is in the basement and he sees them pull that ambulance out of the truck, mm -hmm. everyone in the audience understands exactly what the plan is without a word of dialogue or subtitle. You go, aha. Now, to show you how hastily that was assembled, the word ambulance is misspelled on the ambulance. <laughs> and, and they didn't realize it until the day in the set, and they go, it's the, we, it's the, last, it's the last two days of filming. We, we can't fix it. <laughs> All right, so now they cut the movie together. It's the first assembly of the movie, and the key players are looking at the movie. It's just the, the key players, the editor, director, producer, uh, Bruce and uh, Demi, uh, they, they were just about to get married. I think I was there with my wife, but maybe 15 people. We're watching the movie. It's temporary music track. Occasionally it says shot missing. There's black and white shots. It's a work in progress, but it's working. So we're into the movie. We're about 20 minutes in. And then everybody, everybody in the room goes, oh, hell no. Stop the <laughs> film. Because we realize that since we didn't think of the ambulance, being explained visually as opposed to dialogue until the last few days of filming, they're standing there to synchronize your watches in front of an empty truck. Because <laughs> we, ha we hadn't thought of it yet. Uh -oh. So now McTiernan says uh, to the editors, you got to get the scissors in there. You got to cut that shot as soon as you can, get them off the truck before we can see past them. And while you're at it, color correct it and make it darker. Now I've given it away, and everyone listening to this podcast, get out their Blu-ray and DVD and freeze frame and look behind Alan Rickman and the guys as they get off. There is no ambulance. But now, without synchronize your watches, the repeated moments where Bruce Willis looks at everybody's watch, you go, what's that about? Now we had to cut the line of dialogue when he says, they all have the same weapons. Their IDs are the best fake IDs I've seen. The labels are cut out of their clothing, and they all have the same watch. All the same watch is taken out. All of the moments where he looked at each watch is taken out, except the first one, which plays as a gag. Is he thinking of stealing the watch along yeah, with the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when he went to light the cigarette for Hans Gruber, he saw Hans Gruber's watch. And in the first cut of the film, in that close-up of watch lighting, 
I mean, watch lighting, cigarette lighting, you saw Bruce's eyes go to the watch. And if you were in the audience and with a little rack focus change, right, directing your eye to the change the focus to the watch and the back mm -hmm. Bruce's eyes, everybody understands the thinking process of the actor. But we had to take that out, which has now led to everybody coming up with these cockamamie explanations. <laughs> of course, the only one that holds water is, oh, he's such a good cop, he can tell when someone's lying, which is not the same thing. You know, like uh, Sherlock Holmes, you want to uh, think his way through things, not like, Yes. I, one of the lines that I read, because I, I read your, your script to it, it didn't make it into the movie. And I love the line that's in the movie. It's when, uh, when uh, McLean meets Ellis uh, for the first time. And uh, I think your original line was, he sees, he sees that he's been doing cocaine and he says something like, uh, I think Takagi yep. says, Ellis is in charge of international acquisitions. And then McLean says something like, well, that explains his recent deal with Bolivia. Yes, yes. Instead, 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 though, on the set, for whatever reason, uh, um, it was changed to on the fly to you miss some. Yeah, you, you just, yeah. You missed something, uh, which is, you know, maybe more appropriate for, for a cop uh, not trying to make a scene. And uh, am I right in thinking, it, uh, I, this might not be right, but it's one of the lines that you're not a fan of in this film. Um, Paul Gleason's line. I, I know, I know what it is. I know what you're going to say. All right, we're going to we're going to need some more FBI guys. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a Paul Gleason ad lib, and I thought it was just just a bit too far. This movie, by the way, uh, had the had the 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 two go to assholes of '80s movies in for the first time on screen together. You had Paul Gleason, who always was the go to guy, like the Breakfast Club in this movie, and um, the guy who played. Um, the reporter who uh, plays the he's also in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the guy from guy from the EPA. Uh, so uh, <laughs> never before had so much like uh, so much uh, assholery been uh, been captured <laughs> on screen in one in one film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I was too young to interview um, anyone for Die Hard. I did interview uh, Bruce Willis for Die Hard Five. Um, which is interesting because uh, to me that's not really a diehard movie. It does it no longer feels like a diehard movie uh, by the time you've got to that point in the. No, franchise. no, it's just a it's a generic action movie. In my humble opinion, uh, only the first two movies are diehard movies. Uh, if you wanted to find a diehard movie, in my opinion, but actually objectively, it has it has a Unitarian. Uh, 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 it has a an Arist Aristotelian. Uh, um, uh, uh, unification of time and place and location, which is like classic mm -hmm. Aristotle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it takes place in a compressed time period in one location, and the hero is trapped between the opposing forces of law and order and crime, and they all hate him, and they all want to get rid of him. He's sandwiched between them, uh, and he's all alone, and he has no official help. He's you know, uh, some people come to his aid, but he's improvising all the way. So by the time he gets to the third movie, he is no longer all alone. The authorities are helping him. He's no longer trapped in one place. He's going all over Manhattan. And at the end of the movie, he goes to Canada. <laughs> After that next movie, he's all over the East Coast. And the last picture is all over the world. The first two movies, he's a technophobe. He can't operate a fax machine. Mm. Uh, he doesn't, he's scared to fly. In the later movies, he's flying. He's like flying helicopters. 
He's jumping off of buildings without blinking. In the mm. first movie, he says, oh, God, oh, God, I don't want to die up here. Um, they became generic, generic action movies. What's, what's really odd to me, this is the craziest thing, is the first movie was based on a novel, which was a sequel to another novel. The second movie, Die Harder, was based on another novel by a different guy that had nothing to do with the other novel. Hmm. We changed the hero of that novel to be the character that was in Die Hard. The third movie was a spec script, had nothing to do with Die Hard, called uh, Simon Says. But the crazy thing about Simon Says is that about seven years prior to that, I wrote an article uh, for Premier Magazine uh, that was a goof article. It was about a movie that was wildly out of control with a budget. Hmm. And it was, a, it was a crossover of Die Hard and Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> and the article, the article was written as if the movie had just been produced. So a lot of people thought it was real, right? And there was, a pa there was pages from the script, memos from the studio, we're out of control with the budget, we've got to get the budget down. So I showed how with a pencil, you can get the picture on schedule. But the plot of the fake movie is the plot of Die Hard 3, <laughs> of Simon Says. So I always wondered if the guy who wrote the spec script that became Die Hard 3 saw that article and said, this is a great idea. I'll have Bruce Willis's character hook up with Eddie Murphy to stop a mad bomber. Uh, and we can't get Eddie Murphy, so we'll get Samuel Jackson. Wow. I mean, like, people do still love Die Hard 3, though. I think... Oh, I, it's, I, a, it's, a, it's a great picture. It's, I'm, I'm, it's a wonderful movie. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, to me, it does not check the boxes of what a Die Hard movie is. Whereas, actually, uh, Speed does. Yes. Yeah, it does. If you want to say, if you want to say, what are the elements? Uh, it, the pattern, Air Force One. There's a whole pattern again. Compressed time, compressed space, uh, limited resources. You're on your own. Uh, there are a number of diehard wannabes. It, it got to such a degree it became a genre. Diehard in a, diehard on a <laughs> boat. Diehard, yeah. you know, in a plane. Diehard at the White House. It's uh, diehard in a football stadium recently with Dave Bautista. Final score. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the one, the one that, that abuses me, where there was one called Sudden Death with John claude Van Damme, which was diehard at a, a, a hockey arena. Yeah. And uh, by dumb luck, I was at, I guess, I think it was a Sony picture. I'm not sure. By dumb luck, I was having a meeting at Sony the Monday after the movie opened. And I walked past an open conference room where the producer of that movie was on the phone. And he was just dismayed that the movie had not done better at the box office over that weekend. He said, I don't believe we didn't do better. We had more hostages in that movie than any Die Hard movie. <laughs> uh, like, like, so therefore, it should have done the most business, you know? I mean, listen, you mentioned Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, and obviously Die Hard uh, got praised immediately after its release. It's only now, seemingly, that Street Fighter, your film, is getting the love that it so readily deserves. And I, I say that I have so much love for Street Fighter, um, and it, it, it fascinates me. Like, you wrote the, the pitch for Street Fighter in one night. Well, I, I would I would say uh, probably probably had forty eight hours notice, but yeah, forty eight hours notice. Now, I mean, working on that movie, like I remember a lot of jokes at the time. 
about Jean-Claude being cast as all-American hero Guile in the film. Um, but I'm right in thinking Capcom, the game maker, wanted him all along for this film. Well, no, actually, they, were, they wanted a big action star. So originally they said, um, can you get, get Stallone? Can you get Schwarzenegger? And we just said, you can't afford them. They had a budget of, they had a budget of $30 million. We ended up going a little bit over. Uh, you couldn't afford those guys. So by process of elimination, they finally said, what about Jean-Claude Van Damme? So I said, well, because to a degree this is an ensemble piece, I think we could work that out because we don't need him for 10 weeks. We need him for half that time. Mm. But there's a problem with his accent. You know, and they're playing one of the American characters in the video game. And they go, what accent? Because they're watching his movies all dubbed into Japanese. Uh, so I ended up doing what has been done on a lot of his movies, mentioning he's from Louisiana. But as you tighten the movie up and make it go faster and faster and faster, somehow the line of dialogue about him from being Louisiana fell out of the movie. So, like, right. you just accept it. Well, Americans come in all, uh, they come in all flavors. Um, but the one thing that I kept warning them, I said, he his audience is going to expect an R-rated movie. Mm. And you want a PG-13 movie, there's going to be a disconnect there. Um, but they wanted a PG-13 movie because they were very well aware how much of their fan base dropping the quarters in the machine were really young kids. And so ideally the sweet spot for them was PG-13 because teenagers would go and their younger brothers and sisters would go. Whereas it was a G, if it was a G-rated movie, the little kids would go, I don't want to see a G-rated movie. And the older <laughs> siblings would not go either. So that was the sweet spot. PG-13, you don't want R because you cannot advertise toys on American broadcast television or hamburger meals mm. for an R-rated movie. It's baked into the advertising system. Um, so as predicted, a lot of people were disappointed in the level of the action and violence because it was toned down. It was toned down even more than intended. Now, I had worked in you know, movies and in television. I worked in eight o'clock television, which is family hour. Um, and there's really hard and fast rules there. Uh, there's this presumption in broadcast television that all the children are in bed at exactly 8.30. So if you today <laughs> watch a, if you watch a rerun of an American television show from the eighties, like uh, the A-Team or Knight Rider, uh, and you're just watching it in a rerun, and all of a sudden you get to a scene where somebody says, uh, yeah, boss, I blew off that guy, Michael Knight. He doesn't suspect a thing. Only you and I know about the uh, counterfeit money. And uh, boss, what are you doing? Put away the guy. Bang. You go, oh, 831. Now, of course, yeah. there's, four, there's, there, there's four time zones in America. You know, the whole idea is ridiculous. But, but I know how to do a PG-13 movie. So that's what I wrote. That's what I shot. But right before the movie came out, there was um, a minor school shooting. Not one of the big ones. In fact, uh, nobody got hurt. But it was enough to trigger the, um, uh, you know, the movie, this, this, uh, this movie is not yet rated, a movie about the rating systems, about yeah. this anonymous, anonymous committee, like a, yeah, housewife yeah. And a housewife and a priest and a social worker. Um, they looked at the picture and they rated it R. Even though I had shot, I, 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 I was in the parameters. So we had to recut the movie and they made us recut the movie again. It's rated R. And now the studio's getting really nervous. They've got the toys rolling off the trucks in the warehouse. They've got the hamburger deals. 
So I recut the movie one more time, taking out all the, any, any blood, taking out the sound effect of too many punches, doing cheats like somebody pulls their fist back and we don't see the fist hit, we see the other person fall to the ground with an off-stage thump, the kind of stuff you do Saturday morning cartoons, which I have done. So it's really getting watered down the whole movie. They give us a, a G rating, G. And now the studio's, in, in, the studio's in another panic. Oh my God, nobody, no, no self-respecting teenager will see a G rating movie. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna? I said, don't worry about it. So I had John Claude Van Damme come back into the editing room. We plugged in the microphone and there's a scene where he's rappelling down a rope to sneak into the uh, villain's headquarters. Mm. And he says uh, something, uh, I'm getting too old for this shit. So now we send the movie in, the finished movie. We don't say anything and go, hey, what are you guys trying to pull? You changed the soundtrack since we gave you that G rating. Well, you're not getting away with this. You're getting a PG-13. <laughs> Go, oh no! Oh no! We got a PG thirteen rating. Oh, oh, it's so horrible. Uh, how? I mean, it's it's sort of well documented that your your leading man on that movie, uh, Jean Claude, uh, wasn't as reliable as as you may have hoped. Uh, with you, um, obviously directing this feature. Uh, I never said a word about that until he did an interview with Playboy, and he said it, and then I said, "Okay, uh, yes, I can confirm that that was an issue." Yeah, like the uh, studio hired the studio hired a handler to watch him, and you know keep him on a short leash. Mm. But the handler ended up becoming an enabler. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. And um, and yet you know that like he's got some really great moments there. The, the big speech he gives to his troops. Say uh, you know the scene where Simon Callow uh, is in the background, like looking furious. Um, yes, yes. Which I, I think that's a great speech in that moment I, I you know he turns away and he's got tears in his eyes and you're like john claude i believe i believe in the i believe in this he, he was really again there's a there's a wonderful there's a wonderful clip this can i, I the, the, see my cat my ipad keeps shaking it's not an earthquake there's a wonderful <laughs> clip somebody somebody took that clip and subtitled it like uh phonetically so troopers i'm going to hit him so hard you know, like it, it's subtitled with his accents. It's quite amusing. But he, when I said we're going to have that speech, I remember uh, one of the executives uh, at Universal, um, Tom, um, I can't think of his name now, but anyway, he said, you're going to have John claude Van Damme do the St. Crispin's Day speech. And I go, uh, yeah. <laughs> he says, good luck with that. Actually, actually, John claudes dad was visiting uh, the set that day. And in fact, we gave him a bit part. At the beginning of the movie, there's a montage of, of newscasters all around the world reporting mm. on this, um, you know, sort of Iraqi kind of, Saddam Hussein kind of situation. And his dad was a, a, a newscaster in French. They're, they're Belgian. So um, the father said, right before he went on, the father says, you know, this is interesting. This is the same day that Hitler invaded Belgium. He says, I remember it. We all remember it. I go, oh, really? So uh, tell your son that. And, and, he, and he said, you know, you're, this speech about stopping this, this dictator, this is the anniversary of the day that uh, Hitler invaded our country. And half your family had to go into hiding and were living in fear. And that was in John claudes mind as, as he gave that speech. So he really was uh, emotionally uh, involved in that. And uh, I think he showed some, he really showed some chops there. Mm -hmm. Also, he showed his ability to do comedy. And it was and subsequently, he's shown he, he had a, an American... Uh, Comedy John Claude Van Johnson, 
Mm. But there's a, he's very funny in a number. There's a wonderful scene where he's completely outnumbered and he figures the, the hell with it. My battery is getting a low. Oh, no. Uh, uh, I have 10% battery there. Um, I, I can switch to my phone, though. We can pick up. Um, uh, there's where he, uh, he realizes he's completely outnumbered. A whole bunch of enemy soldiers come out and he just takes out a pocket knife. And they all back away. And he goes, he gets really impressed. He doesn't realize his army has just arrived uh, behind him. The thing that gets me now is the reviews at that time that said, this movie is so stupid, it's accidentally funny. Now, I don't know how anybody could look at that movie and not realize it's intended to be a comedy. It's an action comedy. Yeah, you've got uh, Zangief's line where he's like, quick, change the channel. Yeah, yeah. You got paid? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also like uh, uh, Bison's line when he's standing over the model of Bisonopolis and he's going, no, no, no. The food court should be bigger. Very yeah. funny. <laughs> I uh, mean... Yeah, well, what, what's happened now is on the anniversary of the film, which I guess was two years ago, it was the 30, 25th anniversary of the film, mm. there were all these revisionist articles saying, hey, actually, this movie is a lot of fun. It's pretty good. And one thing I noticed, and it may account for its increasing... Um, popularity and acceptance now is I was at a film festival in I was a guest at a film festival in Madrid and I also um, was in a screening here they're both the 25th anniversary and all these people came up to me to autograph their Blu-rays and their DVDs and they're all people in their mid to late 30s and basically this was the first action movie their parents let them see (laughs) basically and this is why they love it they were finally allowed to see a movie with explosions and killing, and that's why it's a childhood favorite. Yeah. It was like a, it was a, uh, a a benchmark of their transition to watching, you know, more sophisticated films. And and I I, I mean this absolutely sincerely. Like I think it's one of Raul Julia's greatest performances, and as M Bison, and considering how ill he was at the time. Yes. It's, um, it's just incredible. I, I think he like studied Mussolini. Like, yes, uh, yes. He was, to... he, was looking at cli- he was looking at clips of Mussolini and Saddam Hussein, and uh, uh, he, was, he, totally, he totally committed to it. Well, he, when the script came across his, his, uh, his threshold, uh, his kids saw it and mm. go, Street Fighter, Dad, you got to do that. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> but you, so he yeah, had a great time. Yeah, you he had, had a great co- time. With his family, he, was, he brought his kids down there to Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were living there for several months. They had a, a condo on the beach. They uh, swam with the porpoise. He, had a, it was, he, had a, he probably had the best time with his family on any picture he ever did, and that was great. That is great. And, uh, you obviously had to uh, accommodate, because um, he arrived quite gaunt, didn't he? He was quite thin at the start, and you had to uh, move the schedule around a little bit. Uh, yes. In fact, the arc, uh, the... Uh, uh, the costume designer for for his uh, a costume, she had gone on, uh, she was on an earlier flight and she was in Australia, uh, like about, she, we were coming from Thailand where we've been location scouting and she came directly from the States. So she arrived like uh, the night before and I was, our flight landed, um, I don't know, I don't remember the geography, our flight landed, we, 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 wherever we landed, we had to like then travel to the studio. Uh, so she got me in the airport lounge and said, we have a real problem here with Raul. You'll see he's lost a tremendous amount of weight. Uh, Marilyn Vance, this is our costume designer, Academy Award winning costume designer. Uh, she did just the Raul Julia costume for us. Um, mm. And we were told that he had uh, contracted some kind of intestinal parasite when he had just done a picture in Brazil. 
which was ultimately a picture that was released posthumously uh, about a priest who was fighting for the indigenous people. Uh, this turned out to be a lie that was spun by his people. He had been operated on for stomach cancer. So what, what I did, I said, all right, let's push all of his work to the back of the movie and put him on milkshakes and fatten him up and send him to the gym. Um, and the only, I was only, I was unable to move one day of his work. Like there's a limited, you know, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And the day of his work, I was unable to eliminate a pushback was where he comes into the laboratory and says, Dr. Dalsim, how is your work coming today? Where we see he's forcing him to do experiments. So uh, as much as we could with makeup and lighting, we tried to describe how going he was there. You can see it there. But later on, uh, he, he put on some weight and uh, he, he looks, you know, uh, it looks robust enough to uh, carry, carry, carry the weight of the movie. Mm. That had other ramifications, though, because when we started the picture, the debate was, are we going to hire martial artists who we hope can act, or are we going to hire actors to teach martial arts? And the decision was made that since the signature moves of the game were really so oddball and had so little connection to actual Krav Maga or karate, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. there is no, that's not what they teach you in hand-to-hand -hand combat in, you know, in SAS, you know, it's, you know, it's a video game. We said, let's get actors and we'll teach them how to be safe in stunts over the zone. So the idea was that we would shoot all of the fights at the end of the movie and all of the dialogue scenes up front. And we're going to make a movie for 10 weeks. That gives weeks and weeks of time when anybody who's not on camera is in the gym being taught, trained, being built up, being taught how to safely fall and do these like action adventure moves. But because of this last minute shuffle of pushing all Raul's work back, this plan went awry. And we were doing action scenes almost from day one with hardly any rehearsal for the actors. So they were getting only a fraction of the training in these wacky martial arts moves that they were supposed to have gotten. Uh, and as a result, when we wrapped the movie, we saw that a lot of the fight scenes were weak and we ended up going up to Vancouver for about eight days. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And augmenting the fights, duplicating some of the sets and augmenting some of the fights. So um, the, the big fight between uh, John Claude and Raul, that was, we, got, we got that the first time in Australia because that was the end of the shoot and they had both been very well rehearsed by then. But a lot of the other characters, we had to like redo some of their work uh, in um, in Vancouver just to, to amp it up, and then we had to cut it back to satisfy <laughs> the ratings people. I, I, I mean, that ratings controversy that you uh, that you yeah you had the problems that you had on Street Fighter. Uh, another film that you were involved with also had some rating issues. It's a, a film based on um, a comic that I, I absolutely loved uh, as a kid, 2000 AD, because you you uh, sure. You wrote uh, Judge Dredd. And- uh, yes, I, I did. I did the production rewrite of Judge Dredd. I share credit uh, with uh, with uh, Waylon Green, excellent writer. Um, but uh, I was brought in because the producers knew me. And same thing, we want to we want to add some humor. Uh, we want to have some plot twists and things like that. Uh, and I had I had worked with I had developed a couple of movies with Sly that ever never that never got filmed. One was very famous called Isobar. It was kind of like yeah. Snowpiercer. Um, so I got along with Sly. So there were a lot of reasons to bring me in. Um, and um, I knew the comic book very well. In fact, about 10 years prior, I tried to get the same producer, Ed Pressman, interested in the comic book. Nobody in America knew the comic book prior. And even at the time we made the movie, the comic book had just been brought out in an American edition in the hopes it would familiarize Americans with the thing. So what I noticed right away is there were a lot of odd things that were not canon to 2000 and AD. Mm-hmm. And so like, oh, uh, I'm, hang on a second here. I'm getting a little battery warning. Hang on a second. No worries. Uh, 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 let me see here. I have 5% battery remaining. Uh, maybe you should, I'm going to hang up and then call okay. you back on my phone, okay? Okay, great. All, all and, right. I'm ha- yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang up and call you back on my phone. Lovely. All right, there we go. All right. Now I guess I, I don't know where to put. Where, I don't know where to put this. I guess to hold it. You see my you see my arm getting tired. I'll be dropping it down the ceiling as I do. <laughs> Are uh, you sure you, um, you don't want to try and rest it on something? I, I have to get like uh, I have to get in. Where's my? I need an intern to hold my arm. No. It's, it's <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so any anyway, uh, I would notice things in the movie that were not canon. And then speaking of canon, Danny Cannon would uh, uh, he was always he was always saying that. He had convinced everybody in the movie that everything in the thing, he would say, the fans will revolt if you don't do this. And I would go, hey, that's not in the comic book. And he would get really annoyed when I would, you know, look, look, creative discussions are fine. He's a very talented guy. The show Pennyworth is fabulous. We've been watching it. Um, so uh, he wanted he wanted a very dark, 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 gritty vision. Um, 
and uh, I've done dark gritty. I, I've done, you know, Ricochet. I've done some pretty dark gritty movies, uh, mm. but I wanted that there was supposed to be some comedy release in this movie. Um, so he was, ex- he would be increasingly annoyed whenever I would totally innocently say, that's not in the comic. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just going to listen. And so he'd be, and, and, they, and, they, and the people in the room would realize he'd been telling them for months, like something was in the comic, but it wasn't. So his frustration with me couldn't be made more clearly by the fact that in the scene where Sly stops a drunk driver in a flying car. Yeah. Which I wrote. But now he says, well, Mr. D'Souza, this is your third violation. So that was like, his, that, was, that was his payback to me by making the asshole in the movie uh, me. But, but, but the, the ratings thing, the yeah. ratings thing was, was crazy. This was going to be, again, a PG-13 movie with the hamburger deal and a toy deal. Now, again, I've been around the block. I know how to write a PG-13 movie. So for one example, there's a scene in the movie where there's a reporter who is getting wind of the uh, conspiracy that's going on with Armand DeSanti and uh, Jurgen Prucknow. Mm. And he goes on the air. He doesn't know the details, but he says, I'll have a a full report tomorrow. So there's, there's a scene where he goes home to his apartment and in the picture, we cast like, you know, a, uh, an elderly, you know, newscaster, like a, a respectful, uh, a respected senior newscaster. And he's at home with his wife. And I write in the script that this is the future, but these people have been in this apartment 60 years. It looks like your grandmother's apartment. There's like framed pictures of children. There's like, you know, she's knitting. It does not look like the future. It's like totally gimmick <laughs> So the wife says to him, Oh, uh, you're you're walking a tightrope. Just don't worry; it'll be fine. Judge Dredd's like going to solve the whole problem. Uh, I trust Judge Dredd, and the door opens, and it's Armand Desanti in in Judge Dredd's costume, and he, and then he shoots. And I write, I type, cut to the window of the apartment, and you see the curtains are closed. You see flashes of light, and you hear machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's what I typed. So I get a phone call from Andy Vanya, who's brought it through this movie. She says, hey, we've got, uh, uh, we've assembled some of the first dailies. Why don't you come over and see them? So I jump on my bicycle. Uh, by the way, it used to be can't ask me macho in my line of work, but now it's can't ask me verde. You always win if you come in with bicycle clips on your trousers. You come to the meeting, <laughs> like you win. Uh, so I go in and he shows me the scene. I'm watching the scene, but then... When Armand Asante kicks the door open, the camera does not cut to the window. The camera stays in the room, and this elderly couple are machine gunned like Bonnie and Clyde and Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> and their bodies are twitching, and they're like they're all over the room, and the children's grandchildren's pictures are shattered, and all and the whole room is destroyed, and their bodies are twitching. And I go, oh my god, oh my god, Andy, this is. We are so screwed. You just <laughs> lost your PG PG thirteen rating. And he says, "No, I didn't." I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "He says to the, he pushes the button. He says, run it again, again. Once was enough. No, pay attention this time, Stephen." <laughs> so I'm watching again. I go, "What was I supposed to see?" He says, "There was no blood. They were dry squibs. You just saw black bullet holes on the people, hundreds of black bullet holes, but no blood. That's PG." And I said, who told you that? And he said, Danny Cannon. <laughs> I go, uh-huh. Well, I, 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 I got to tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years, and there ain't no such rule. 
oh, you must be mistaken. Maybe you're not like fine. Okay, now another scene that I wrote, okay, was at one point, Armand, uh, at one point, Jurgen Prochnow realizes he's gotten in bed with the lunatic, that he was well-intentioned for whatever reason. It's out of control. And he says, Rico, this has gone too far. I'm calling it off. And he, and he starts to leave the room. And Armand Asante says, robot, kill Jurgen Prochnow. Rip his arms and legs off, but save his head for last. I want to hear him scream. And I type that the robot backs our, um, Jürgen Pruck now off camera. The camera does not pan. I'm typing this. Mm. All we see are shadows. We see Armand Asante watching with great amusement, Joan Chen disturbed but fascinated, and we hear horrible screaming and gruesome sound effects. Right. right. Danny has a tremendously talented crew of puppeteers who made the robot. Yeah. Right? And he says, listen, while you're in your robot shop, make me a robotic Jürgen Prochnow. <laughs> so they made a life-size Jürgen Prochnow puppet with removable arms, legs, and head that squirted arterial blood. And they filmed that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the movie is turned in for the rating and it's rated X because oh of all God. these excesses. And these, these are the most extreme excesses, but at every opportunity there was in the movie to show blood or gore or gruesome, even the clones, the, the clones that come out of the vat were like oozing and mm -hmm. postulating you know, with like pustulating, oozing, and, you know, bladders all over them, you know. We had to cut back every shot of the, of the of, of even the clones emerging from the tanks. They were so gross. <laughs> uh, so we're rated X. We recut the movie. It's rated X again. And now the studio is in a panic because, remember I said you can't advertise toys for an R-rated movie? You yeah. Can't, you, can't even, you can't even advertise an X-rated movie. <laughs> during during daytime hours when children are watching. You can't have a hamburger deal. At this moment when the movie's being raided, the, the toys are being stamped out at the factory. They're <laughs> shipping the the car they're shipping the cardboard boxes for the happy meal. So now we recut the picture drastically. All these things are cut to the minimum. The picture's getting shorter and shorter by you know, like five, seven minutes. It's all like the gruesome stuff being cut out. We turn the picture in the third time. You're only allowed to get three bites at the apple. It's rated X. It's a death knoll. What are we going to do? Somehow, some way, it was Jack Valenti's like uh, last few weeks as the head of the MPAA. Somehow, Ed Pressman went on bended knee. They gave us one more shot and they rated us R. So at least it wasn't X. Yeah. Now, the toy company sues the studio, sues Synergy, which is the production company, and uh, Hollywood Pictures, which is the division of Disney that did non-cartoon movies. The hamburger people, I think it was uh, Burger King, they sue, and, and they, set, they get settled out of court. They took a bath. And now we see what is the advertising campaign for this movie? You have an R-rated movie. It's based on a comic book, and in desperation, I, I, I don't know why, uh, what they were thinking. They go, oh, let's do a comic book oriented campaign. Now already you have an R-rated movie of a comic book that nobody in America is familiar with. <laughs> Whoever's in charge of the advertising campaign 
the distinction between comic books and graphic novels and newspaper comic strips is lost on the advertising agency. So the advertising campaign is black and white newspaper strips, you know, with four or five panels. Yeah. You know, like, like, like Peanuts yeah. or like Dennis the Menace, right? Yeah. Black and white, right? That's the advertising campaign with dialogue balloons. And it was very similar to the, the, the campaign for the Phantom, which is about the same time, like Stop Evil. So there's cartoons, of, uh, cartoon drawings, very cartoony, not even as realistic as a Marvel comic which are quite you know, commercial art now, or, or 2000 AD, which is like the, the graphic design of that. Not that level. I'm talking about, you know, like Sunday strips. Um, stop thief, I am the law, right? Uh, <laughs> this is the last straw for you, mean machine. So they're featuring characters that nobody knows in America <laughs> on the sides of, on the, so it's a juvenile campaign for an R-rated movie. Uh, now, cut the, the payoff of the story is several years later, Stephen Cannell, uh, since deceased, a wonderful, talented guy, was the king of television uh, in American television in the 90s. He was a neighbor of mine at Universal Studios, and I was producing Knight Rider. Uh, so I knew him personally. Uh, he calls me up out of the blue and says, I have uh, interest in Walt Disney uh, to make a, uh, to make a, motion picture out of my TV series, Greatest American Hero. You've been doing all these superhero science fiction movies. Um, you know the show. Do you have a take that could take this TV show to the feature level? So I see him a couple of days, and I pitch my take on how to make the movie version of the TV show, which had a lot of changes in it. You know, we're working in a movie, a bigger scale, bigger budget. Times have changed. Um, he loves it. We go into Walt Disney Studios, we pitch it to the development executives. One of the three times in a, a career of over 30 years where the people in the room applaud the pitch. Wow. Applaud, applaud the pitch. <laughs> I'm getting hands slapped on the back, shaking hands. We leave the building. Uh, Camel hugs me outside the elevator. Man, you brought it home. I get in the car. I'm driving home. I'm in a lot of traffic. Takes me like I'm just pulling into my driveway. My phone rings. It's Steve Canley. He says, "I don't know what the hell happened. They were so excited. They went right up upstairs, and upper manager said, Steve D'Souza, that son of a bitch. He gave us an X-rated movie, R-rated movie. We got sued by the hamburgers. We got sued by the toy people. He will never work on the water on the Disney or lot or ABC ever again." <laughs> And I'm going, it wasn't me, it was the director. <laughs> wow. As wow. it turned out, as it turned out, there were short institutional memories. People go to other jobs. I actually have worked for ABC and Disney since then. So, like, all is forgiven. Oh. Hey, um, I don't want to run down all your devices, and we have been talking for a while, but I, I, I do want to talk to you about one other movie, just because... Um, because I love it, and you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about uh, how you were responsible for some of the bare-chested muscle men destroying everything. Now, Commando is, uh, to my mind, one of the great 80s movies. It's, uh, it's, it's a movie that, I, for me, really set out the Arnie that I know now and sort of knew yes, for almost yes, yes. two decades. Absolutely. I, I find it very interesting, and it, it, it's really not a testament to me it's a testament to the core, uh, uh, the, the core persona of 
of these actors as they're trying to find their way in their career. Uh, the actors that are more personalities than chameleons, mm. you know what I mean? Like with Humphrey Bogart, you get Humphrey Bogart. Once in a while, he stretches when he's Fred C. Dobbs in, 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 you know, in, in um, Sierra Madre. Um, but what I, I learned, one of my first mentors and bosses when I was working in television was uh, Don Mankiewicz, the son of Mankiewicz of the famous Susan Cain movie. Yeah. And he said, try and meet your actors, try and listen to their speech patterns, and try and tailor dialogue to them the way a tailor would fit a suit, a custom suit. Hmm. You know, so I learned that early on when I was working in television. Uh, so uh, what happened with 48 Hours, my first, like, my first uh, uh, Hollywood studio picture, um, was I met the actors. So Nick Nolte came in uh, to meet me. Uh, and he comes in looking a lot like he did when he got arrested. He's out of shape. His hair is long. And he says, hey, yeah, I'm going to get go to the gym. I'm going to lose the gut and get in shape. Eddie Murphy was so naive coming off Saturday Night Live, he wore a suit and tie to meet the writer. And like you to meet the, to meet your girlfriend's father. Not even a cool, not even a cool suit, like a go to church suit. You know, so so uh, so I, I said to the studio, don't send Nick to the gym. I'm going to write to this slobby guy. Let Eddie be sharp and, and, and there'll be a running gag. They think he's the cop. So anyway, what happened with Commando was um, Barry Diller became the head of Fox. And he, his first day in that new position, he goes to Larry Gordon, who did, all, did a lot of action movies, and said, I met Schwarzenegger at a cocktail party. And he's a really charming, funny guy. Nothing like the role he has played in Conan uh, or in The Terminator. If you can make a movie with him for $10 million, I will immediately greenlight it because we've got to get some movies in the pipeline. So Larry says this to me and to Joel Silver, and we had all worked together on previous movies, television and stuff like that. So we had a, a core group and they said, and they went and they sent somebody to like the ship, to the, to the storage room and they got a half a dozen scripts that had been bought by the studio in the past and never made that were sort of action-y. And they said, is there something here that could be quickly reworked to be a movie we could do right away rather than start from scratch? So everybody agreed that the script commando had the best possibility of being greatly revised, but nonetheless a starting point for Schwarzenegger in that it was a trained military guy whose wife and daughter were kidnapped. Now, the immediate problem was the wife and daughter are both kidnapped. They're not kidnapped till page 40. And the character is a, an Israeli now living in America, hmm. a former Mossad agent. So already, that, already that's a stretch for Arnold. <laughs> All right, so, so uh, everybody agrees on Monday morning, this is the one. And they say, great, uh, you're going to see Arnold at 2 o'clock. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa wait, hey, hold it. I, I just started, I, I, you got, you'll, you'll have it by then, Steve, just tapped it. Now, again, I'd worked in television for these guys, and they know you're coming up with stories real quickly and real fast. You'll be fine. So we're dri I'm driving across town with Joel Silver from 20th Century Fox to, to uh, Arnold's office, about a 35-minute drive, sort of brainstorming. So I'm telling Arnold the story. We can't give him the script to read. He's at the first page, Israeli. <laughs> you know, uh, and and who the guys who wrote the script either they weren't in California very long, but at the point in the in the story where the character realized he has to rescue his wife and daughter, he does the same thing that Reese does in Terminator. 
he goes to the supermarket and buys products to improvise weapons. I'm going, this is California. You can just go to an Army Navy store and get all the guns he wants, you know? <laughs> so I, I act out the story as I am going to revise it for Arnold. And at one point, I say, and then you say, remember, Sully, when I said I would kill you last, I lied. And suddenly, Arnold, like I said, I, go, I realize I slipped into my cocktail party Arnold impression. So I quickly go, I do all the greats, Arnold. Let me, do, let me do Cary Grant for you. He says, that's all right. Just keep going. <laughs> so at the, at the end of the session, he says, I like this part. I'm not a robot from the future, a caveman from the past. I'm very close. I'm having a family. It's a part Sean Vane could play. I do this picture. <laughs> and what we realized then, that Arnold and his, and his agents were desperate to get work. He had been so pigeonholed as his freak of nature, mm. he was being rejected for everything he was going after. Because people are saying, you can't believe him in this part. He's like an undercover cop. Like, you, know, you see him 10 miles, you're like, all of the kind of... So he desperately needed this movie. So he signed to do the movie. Uh, and now as we go to put the picture together, right before we start, Larry Gordon was made head of physical production. Not a producer on a lot, but it has a physical production under Barry Diller and under, you know, uh, stockholding publicly held companies. You can't double dip, dip. You can't be like on the board of directors and also have a job. So he said, I can't produce this movie. Joel, who had been an associate producer up to that time, he said, Joel, this is your lucky day. You're going to produce this movie. Your first sole producing credit. And Joel said, great, let's discuss my back-end profits. And Larry <laughs> said, that's very amusing. <laughs> and then uh, Arnold, Arnold's people, they wanted to negotiate a back-end of profits. And they said, hey, we're taking a risk with your guy. He has never been in a movie playing a normal human being before. Right? Mm -hmm. So we are not giving you this big piece of the back-end. So this movie had no gross players. So there actually was a net. So I've done, uh, John Millius and I have a running uh, uh, argument of who has had more movies made. So mm. we're tied at, I think, 24 movies, but we're both cheating because we're counting a TV, TV projects. In any event, out of those 24 movies I've had made, only two are shown as going into profit. One was Commando because the movie was so cheap. It only cost barely $11 million. And it made so much money, you couldn't hide the profits. Mm. And the other was, strangely enough, The Flintstones, which had 300-pound gorillas on it, like Spielberg and John Goodman, but was a very cheap movie because it was entirely on the back lot. Mm. Everybody had one piece of wardrobe. Nobody even changed clothes. <laughs> it, it never went into overtime because it, you know, it was on the lot. So the movie only cost like $42 million, which was like nothing then. And at one point, it was the most highest, the highest grossing comedy of all time. So all the other movies are still like even – I go – how come you're still making these diehard movies when the profit statements for one and two show it's still in the red? The way that works is the studio borrows the money to make the movie and then they pay it off with interest so they never catch up. It's like a student loan. Yeah. This, is not to be, this is not to be infused with residuals, which actors and, and creatives get. Like, you know, if you get a DVD, the actors and the directors and the writers get a share of that DVD purchase. So mm. I'm not complaining. Right now, I probably made 85 cents Somebody's watching a Knight Rider rerun in Poland. Mm. Uh, but the profit, profit statements is, 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 is a different thing. Um, so, um, and again, today, uh, at that time, uh, Arnold and Sly were in this competition. And, uh, and Arnold said, he quite accurately said, 20 years from now, 
my movie is going to be the one people are still talking about it because <laughs> it ha- because it has a sense of humor about what it is. Yeah, and well, and he was he was totally right. Yeah, and although even though I mean you did run out of money, didn't you on on Commando in terms of the budget because the the ending was uh, was going to be a much grander uh, affair than it ended up being. Uh, yeah, that, that 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 really bothers me because uh, uh, you can see. You can, if you pay attention to the movie, you can sort of figure out what happened in there. What I originally wrote, uh, and again, people are confused in the script, but in the script, we are saying that the the the, the general, the, the dictator in exile is living on one of the islands off of the California coast. There's a number of islands off the California coast. Santa Catalina is the best known. It's like a county, hmm. and there's a town there, and people live there. Um, Santa Cruz Island was a military base that the U.S. Navy used for training. And they would have amphibious landings on an island, and they would have artillery targets for the Navy to shell. And my idea was, and written in the script was, that when it all turns to crap for the villain, the, uh, uh, the Bennett grabs a little girl, jumps in a speedboat to escape. Arnold jumps in another speedboat and follows he shoots at this fleeing speedboat and hits a fuel line. Running out of fuel, Bennett looks around, he sees a beach, and he drives onto the beach. Arnold follows to the beach. But they are not aware that this is Santa Cruz Island, which is what the U.S. Navy uses for target practice. Now, earlier in the movie, when they're flying to the island, there's an interruption, and they say, attention, unidentified aircraft. You're approaching the U.S. Navy Artillery range, Santa Cruz Island. It is a no-fly area, and the guy on the other end of that call is um, a very well-known actor from Aliens, right? Oh, Bill, uh, Bill Paxton. Yeah, that's one of his first parts. That is a setup for the audience to realize, oh no, they're on that island. <laughs> so the final knife fight was going to be like Private Ryan. These two guys having a knife fight on Normandy Beach with the barbed wire and the concrete blocks with explosions all around them. Now, I'm up, in, I'm up in Vancouver on a location scout for The Running Man, another Arnold movie, which ended up not shooting in Vancouver, uh, as it turned out. Uh, but I'm up there and I get a phone call from Joel Silver and he says, listen, I need you to dictate a new scene for the end of the movie. I go, what are you talking about? That scene on the beach, the night fight? We couldn't do it on a beach. I said, what do you mean you couldn't do it on a beach? He says, I'll explain later, but it's, we're filming it in a basement. In a basement? He says, <laughs> it's a long story. It's now in a basement. So rewrite it for a basement. I want, uh, is, it a, is it a set? He says, no, it's a real basement. Um, stand by. We're going we're gonna to email pictures of the basement to you. <laughs> so, they send, so they send somebody in the basement. And they email me pictures, and then they put a telephone. They put somebody down on a telephone, an assistant walking around the basement, saying, "Okay, that picture of the stairwell—that's at one end. The other end is a, uh, is, a is a boiler, and there's a, a balcony." She's describing the basement to me. So now in Vancouver, I in my hotel room, I'm rewriting the fight with the same dialogue, right? Yeah. But to accommodate, and now and I'm making up different ways to kill him. Like, uh, watch that first step. Like, I, I killed Bennett in five ways. Watch that first step. Let off some steam. They ended up using two of them, the electricity and the let off some steam. <laughs> yeah, now, it tur- now, 
it turned out the reason that they ran out of money was while we were in production, uh, our director saw a sneak preview of Rambo. And he comes back from the sneak preview on Rambo and says, they're killing a thousand guys in Rambo. We have to kill more guys. Now, I had written in the script a rather plausible cadre of professional mercenaries who were guarding this dictator in exile. And in the opening scene, you saw about seven or eight of them. And it was an ethnically mixed group of like mooks, hmm. you know, you know, with mercenaries of all nations. And we also saw them again when they had a little girl in a chair with a gag around her set, right? Yeah. And just like Beverly Hills Cop, you figure somebody like this is a dozen guys on his payroll. That's what I wrote, it's sort of plausible. Unbeknownst to me, in order to have like a bigger body count, um, they just, he decides to have somehow on, on a private island here, he has an entire army that he has transplanted from Central America. So now we have this, this kind of like basically blatantly racist trope of mowing down like hundreds of brown people instead of like a dozen you know, bodyguards of all ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he ends up spending four or five days on this thing. Now, wh- there, there was a gunfight at the house that was written. And I did write the scene in the garden shed, you know, with the frisbee yes. cutting off the head, cutting yeah. off the head and, and, and cutting off the head and the, uh, and, and the machete joke. But this like mass extermination was, I was as shocked when I saw it as anybody else. And the money that went into that robbed the scene that was supposed to be the end of the movie. But what's really odd is you have that whole setup. You're approaching San Catalina or the, the, uh, the Santa Cruz, you know, it's set up, mm. but it's not pay off. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve, I, 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 we've been talking for a while and you've already lost the battery on one device. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. You, only because you mentioned it earlier. I really love the sound of Isobar. I read all about it. An alien on a train. Like, it sounds like a movie I, I kind of wish had actually seen the light of day. Uh, there's a book called The Greatest Science Fiction Movies Never Made uh, by one of the editors of Empire Magazine. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, this, this, uh, Nick, I can't think of his name. This is embarrassing. I got the book here somewhere on my desk uh, in which he goes into great detail about uh, the plot of the movie. And the movie was canceled like two weeks before start. It would have been a very good movie. It started out as Alien on a Train, but it became uh, more complicated, more sophisticated. It was kind of like really Grand Hotel meets Titanic. Wow. Um, uh, and it, and uh, it, it, it was uh, very ambitious. And we were talking about they had actually cast, they'd cast, uh, Stallone was cast, and um, uh, what's her name? Uh, God, uh, a beautiful actress, I can't think of her name, but we, we, we had, a lot of the parts were cast and had to be paid off, you know, because they had, you know, committed their time to being in the movie, and, and then it was canceled. Uh, Kim Basinger was, uh, was the leading lady, and um, uh, Jim Belushi was cast in a part in the picture. Uh, Jim Belushi was in the, uh, the part of the, uh, of the crude, rich uh, millionaire who's, who you, you meet in uh, uh, you meet in Grand Hotel, mm. the Wallace Beery part, um, and there was and we the, they were going to have a, a senior citizen romance with Peter O'Toole and uh, Sophia Loren. I mean, it, we, it was a very ambitious movie, um, and uh, I, I, I still think it could be made. Uh, it, it, it resembled Snowpiercer in it was a near apocalyptic story, but it wasn't post-apocalyptic. It was in the future and the ozone layer was so destroyed that there was no longer any jet travel. 
So there were bullet trains that took you around the world. And this was the inaugural trip of the first bullet train that went from North America to, Europe, to, to Great Britain over the North Pole through Iceland. So, uh, and um, and uh, unbeknownst to some of the, uh, to this passengers, uh, there was a, a company that had been doing uh, uh, kind of genetic experiments that was developing something um, that was going to make a lot of money for them uh, to like uh, a, a developing an organism that would generate oxygen to deplete you know, that they would they, in the future people are buying air buying water it's like we're getting to right now mm. you know, like water is becoming a commodity so the yeah. future like all these things are in short supply so the villains had the shortcut of genetic engineering that enable them to manufacture air and, and uh, rip people off by selling air uh, you know, at, at ridiculous prices, but the genetic experiment gets haywire and it mutates and it's on the train and it's killing people. Uh, so it was um, uh, a survival story. It was uh, very upscale and glamorous. Everybody was going to, it was going to, it was going to be like Titanic. It very much, we had the same drive dynamic of a, a young girl is being forced to marry a rich asshole, a lot of that stuff. Uh, and uh, this book, the greatest science fiction movies never made. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth reading. And you'll get a gist of what the movie would have been. And I hope that someday it gets made. And now, uh, Dean Devlin, uh, who was, uh, had done, a, done an early draft of the movie before I, I did the, the uh, production rewrite uh, for Roland Emmerich, he later on acquired the rights to make the movie. And he says, he says that he's going to make it someday. But, um, you know, so I have fingers crossed. Yeah. That sounds like another, uh, another prophetic script from you in, in water becoming a commodity, not unlike all, all the crazy predictions you made with Running Man. I didn't, I think you even predicted the internet. You predicted the internet. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I know uh, the, the, uh, it, it, when, when Trump was elected, uh, there were a bunch of uh, articles all over, the, all over the world about how the movie predicted Trump in, mm -hmm. in the persona of a game show host who's running the government uh, of, fa of, of fake news. Yep. Uh, the the, the uh, AI house, you know, lights on, put on the oven, mm -hmm. make coffee. Uh, there are so many things that we got right. Um, uh, and uh, a Vice, the, the Vice channel did a documentary, uh, a 15-minute documentary about all. So I keep saying, it's not my fault. <laughs> I, 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 I was just typing it. It was just typing. Please don't blame me. Yeah. So, so is there, that fake news thing where uh, they used the footage, the fa they faked the footage of Jesse Ventura killing uh, killing Arnie and uh, oh, that's, uh, Amber. That, that's another post-production idiocy. In the original script, the uh, I copied, it gets sealed from the best, I copied the end of the sting. You did not know that the, that the TV show was so desperate that they faked Arnold's death. Just like you did not know that Paul Newman and Robert Redford were pretending to kill each other until after they did it. So the audience was shocked when they killed each other in the sting. Then the people, they're mind, they're, they're mind fucking, they're, they're head faking, leave yeah. the room and they get up and say, boy, that really worked. That's the way the picture was written and assembled. And I was in a test audience screening of the movie. And when Jesse Ventura killed, he comes out and the first thing he does, he kills Marie Conchita Lanza snaps her neck. The audience mm. is stunned. And now Arnold beats the living daylights out of Jesse Ventura and little old ladies saying, kill the son of a bitch, Arnold. They can't believe he killed. And then at the last minute, Jesse Ventura throws Arnold on spikes and he dies. And the audience watching the show in the movie is as stunned as the audience in the theater. And then the TV show ends 
And then Richard Dawson says, boy, that trick worked. And, and you see behind him on screen, somebody pushes a button and the face of the dead guy comes off and it's some other poor bastard they kill. When we show it at test screening, as often of the 1980s, when we have film and it wasn't digital, it was a black and white shot of a special effect. It said effect missing. So there's like 600 people at this test screening. And uh, I come into this, and it was off the charts, the test screening, off the charts, um, equal to Die Hard. So I come in the next day to the studio, and I see the editors are working on the last three. Like, what's going on? He says, we're recutting the last three. We're swapping two scenes. I go, what the hell? Who ordered this? And it's just, it was a producer of the movie who was a producer in movie business for five minutes. He was a rich <laughs> guy, made his money, he bought the rights to the book, and now like had a, and I go, what the hell is this? He says, look at this, look at the cards. So there's people fill out the cards, right? Mm -hmm. So the cards, like you say, what did you like? What didn't you like? And there's like 15 cards that say, I did not understand how they faked Arnold's death. And he says, uh, the audience doesn't get it. And I go, look at these cards, these people, why did you come to the movie? Came with grandchild. These people don't get it because they're old. You got 600 people there. You had 15 people that weren't confused because it says shot missing. <laughs> you're an idiot. And, uh, and I, I, I said to the editor, you know you're screwing the movie. You're hurting this movie. And he says, yeah, but he writes the checks. <laughs> he, writes the che he, he writes the checks. He's going to be out of the movie business in a year. I won't be. We're never working again. Anyway, I invite anyone who has a, 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 a Blu-ray of the movie to swap those two scenes back. Uh, because what happens is, if you see the movie, you watch that big fight like in complete boredom. It's like watching a rerun of the big soccer match last week. <laughs> you know how it ends. So all the excitement got sucked out of like the, like the last 15 minutes of the movie. And it affected, yeah. I think, the, uh, the, the box office. Yeah, yeah. Although, uh, like, uh, it's like all the movies we talked about. A lot of love for The Running Man. A lot of love for that film. And Stephen, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat to me, and thank you for showing me some California sunshine. It looks amazing there. I uh, I have spent this entire interview being slightly jealous. I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll give a higher angle here. I'll say, okay, you see the uh, oh, you see, see the, the, invi the inviting swimming pool there, which I can't go in. Uh, I, I, I've got, I've got a, I, I had, sti I had stitches in my leg and he said, I can't go in the pool, uh, till the stitches close. So, so I'm just like you, I'm looking longingly at the swimming pool. Well, okay. That makes me feel a bit better. How, how, how do you, why do you have stitches in your leg? Did you hurt yourself? Uh, no, I, I, I had some surgery and it's, uh, okay. I, I'm on the mend. I'm on the mend. You wouldn't know it looking at me except for me no. complaining I can't go in the pool for another week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephen, a pleasure speaking to you. Enjoy the rest of your day in sunny California. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For your time, mate. All right. Thank you. And, and uh, Have take a care. Day. Cheers. You too. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.